0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, July at Christmas! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at podcast at Winnipeg Show notes and references can be found at Lueepodcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host today. With me I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Jem Newman.
1: Mixers are the spawn of the devil.
0: And Lauren Bailey. I can't follow that. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdos. (laughs) True story. (laughs) This podcast has released quite a few Christmas, winter holiday, and December solstice related episodes. Probably nine, although I couldn't be bothered to go check. (laughs) So we've covered most of our good ideas. If you have a good idea, uh, you can write to L-U-E-E podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Maybe there are some more horrifying Christian Christmas movies we need to enjoy. (laughs) Anyway, uh, most people are familiar with the idea of Christmas in July. I was surprised to find how far back it actually goes, all the way to an opera from the late 1800s, where kids were practicing a Christmas song in July, uh, and someone basically tells them to knock it off. (laughs) (laughs) By the 1940s, Christmas in July was a common enough thing at summer camps to warrant a write-up in the papers. Retailers started using it as an excuse for a sale by the 1950s. I found this sentence from the Wikipedia article on the history of Christmas in July to be particularly funny. Some individuals choose to celebrate Christmas in July themselves, typically as an intentionally transparent excuse to have a party. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Darn, more celebration? Aw... Some Southern Hemisphere countries, particularly Australia, also celebrate Christmas in July in order to have a wintry celebration similar to Northern Hemisphere Christmases, although those who celebrate Christmas still enjoy a nice white wine in the sun on December 25th as well. I'm not expecting big
1: presents. The old combination of socks, jocks, and chocolates is just fine by me. I'll be seeing my dad My brother and sisters My gran and my mum. They'll be drinking White wine in the sun I'll be seeing my dad My brother and sisters My gran and my mum. They'll be drinking
0: So here we are, and it's the 6th of December as we record this. The holiday season is in full swing, and I wanted to flip the trope. I want to celebrate July on Christmas. This year, I want to talk about summer, warm things, summer creatures, beaches, the June solstice. Ian James, our long-suffering music producer, even composed some sweet tunes for us. So here we go. (laughs)
2: Let's
0: start with Laura and some sun-related myths. Thanks, Ashlyn. I thought that if we're going to be talking about July, one of
3: the best things about July, for me at least, is the sun and warmth. Because here in in Canada, where we are, we only get a couple months of it, and I do enjoy it when it's here. So I thought that it would be good to remind us all of those days now that it's finally dipping back into those seasonal December temperatures now.
0: It'll be nice to talk about the sun while our feet freeze off because we can't have the furnace going while we
3: record. (laughs) 50% of your through. Fifty percent of us are wrapped in blankets right now.
1: (laughs) You have a loud furnace.
3: (laughs) It's a normal furnace. Mm. All right. So, of course, the sun is a wonderful thing. It it doesn't make the world go round, but it makes everything on the world possible, basically.
0: It's gravity kind of makes the world go round.
3: well, it depends what you're talking about, in <laughs> which way, because the world goes around it, but it also revolves on itself. That's true. So it depends which type of thing you're talking about.
1: Well, typically it going around the sun is the revolution, the rotation is the Earth spinning right, on Right, but they're axis.
3: both turning. They're both around. And they're both going
1: round, so... <laughs> right, but only one of them is going around the sun.
3: Yeah, I didn't say round the sun, I said round.
1: Okay, well... Fair.
3: I really wish everybody could see my finger. <laughs> <I'm> like, Whoa!
2: <laughs> it's not the one you're thinking of. <laughs> I'm
3: sorry. Yeah, I'm actually being nice to him. <laughs> in any case, back to some sun related things. So, the first thing that I want to talk about is vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, because of course that is very important, it's something we think about in the sunny days and the warm weather. And the reason that I bring this up is is a purely selfish reason. And it's not anybody's fault, but it is one of my pet peeves when people seem to be under the impression that vitamin D literally comes from the sun. Like, this is a thing, as I do nutrition education, where a lot of people seem to think that vitamin D travels along those UV rays and implants itself in our bodies. I just wanted to explain how vitamin D works a little bit.
1: That's the wave-particle duality of uh, of light. <laughs> right. Vitamin D is the is the particle. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. So I'm sure that all of you here were well aware that this was not true, but there seems to be a lot of people that believe that the sun sort of sends sends vitamin D to us through the UV rays.
1: And hey, listener, if you thought that, that's okay. It's yeah, okay to not know stuff.
3: It is totally okay. And I don't, I'm not angry or, you know, looking down on anyone. I just really wanted to take an opportunity and a platform to clear that up a little bit. So our bodies make our own vitamin D. We need the input of the UV rays from the sun in order to do it. So specifically, we need the UVB rays. And so the exposure to the UVB is what causes the chemical transformation.
0: So yeah, I was always not really sure why the sun gives us vitamin D but lights inside don't cuz I thought it was just like your skin turning photons into the vitamin but it's the UVB that matters.
3: Yeah, it's this it's, it's specific the, the
1: energy range of the of the photons, right? Sorry? <laughs> so the, so the photons will have a certain uh, energy level. It like UVA versus UVB versus visible spectrum light. The only thing that's different, right?
3: The f- it's the wavelength.
1: It's it's the wavelength yeah. or the frequency of mm. of the light. Yeah. So, so it's, when it falls within a certain energy energy range.
3: Yeah. So it's it's more specific than just because our incandescent lights don't have those same energy ranges, or they might, but not in sufficient quantities. And that's mm. what's really important with vitamin D as well. So UVB has a certain wavelength or or frequency. I'm sorry, I forget my physics. Don't,
1: don't. It it has both.
3: Um, Well, I know it has both, but I don't remember which one or I don't know which one specifically it is. But what it does is it, um, it actually interacts with a type, uh, a version of cholesterol in our bodies. And that radiation turns cholesterol into vitamin D for us. So oh, that's really? what's cool. So another reason why we good actually do cholesterol is cholest- bad
0: cholesterol. It's just cholesterol. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's just cholesterol. Um, so that's what's interesting. So how this relates to vitamin D levels in different people is because the amount of UVB rays varies depending on the time of day and the season and then where you are on the planet as well. So, how this translates into vitamin D levels for people is that if you live near the equator, it's going to be quite consistent your your UVB exposure because the days are the same, the seasons are very similar, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas us here in the northern hemisphere, the closer or you know the closer you get to either of the poles, there, the more variation you're going to get. So here, where we are, about six months of the year, there just isn't enough UVB to actually get that vitamin D production going. We're just too far from the sun for the UVB to be effective for us there. So we, that's why in certain climates, it's a lot easier to be low in vitamin D because we just don't have that skin exposure.
0: I've heard that basically all Canadians should be on some kind of vitamin D supplement. Is that relatively accurate? You know,
3: that the vitamin D debate is actually a really big one. And I thought about whether or not I should really bring this up because I have some ideas and some opinions, but I know it's really big and I couldn't do the full research Mm. for it there. But one thing that I can say is that six months of the year, we don't get sun exposure, um, and our food supply is quite low in vitamin D. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of people that are probably not getting very much vitamin D. And then there's certain medications and health issues and things like that that increase either your risk of deficiency or your need for things as well. So, I mean, vitamin D is a pretty safe supplement, especially in smaller doses and, and things like that. So, it's generally not a bad idea to So, like do that. one sunny day a day? <laughs> Does that have any vitamin D in it? I assume I'm so. I'm really curious. Oh, it somebody look so it up. It's bad, though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's better than that purple stuff.
3: Purple stuff. <laughs> That's the commercial. Yeah. Have you never seen a Sunny D commercial? Oh, I probably oh, have. Oh, what's but the a drink? There's ago. cola. We got some purple stuff. Ooh, oh, yes, yeah, sunny, sunny D. D. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this was their oh, whole man. commercial. Sure oh, i blocked that insert out. the,
1: insert the They also
3: had two varieties for a long time. Yeah. California and Florida. I yeah. think Florida was more syrupy or something.
0: We used to only get Sunny D when we were camping. It was like a special treat drink.
3: Okay, so, so everybody knows, at least at the time of the printing of this food label, there is vitamin C, but there is no vitamin D in what? Sunny D. That feels like false Sunny, advertising. Sunny, Sunny D-, D
1: is short for Sunny, Sunny, Sunny delight. delight. I
3: know, I know. Sunny D is the cool name. All right. So we're all clear. The sun, vitamin D does not travel along those light waves to get into our skin. We need that UV radiation in order for our bodies to make vitamin D. Cool, right? Pretty cool. Pretty yeah. cool. I think it's awesome. Does melanin have something to do with vitamin D? Melanin is, is like the body's own sunscreen. Mm-hmm. It absorbs some of those UV UV rays there. So if you live in a place where there is a lot of UVB rays, then melanin is good because it's going to help to balance out with... Uh, it's going to help balance out. So you're still going to get UVB and you're still going to get the vitamin D production, uh, but you're not going to get so much that your skin is getting damaged all the time. Um, and so, again, if you live in a place with not a lot of uh, UVB, you don't need as much melanin for that same protection and the balance ends up being there. If you have dark, darker skin and you live in a place that does not have a lot of sunlight or um, and does not have a lot of UVB, then it could make it a lot harder for you to get enough vitamin D because that shortened window of, of exposure, you need so much more exposure to make that vitamin D than mm-hmm. somebody
0: who doesn't have that level of melanin. And so sunscreen will also make you produce less vitamin D?
3: So that's interesting. So that's one of the, the sunscreen myths that comes up. From the best sources that I could find, there isn't any clear association of vitamin D deficiencies happening due to sunscreen use. Hmm. However, there's a couple of important caveats with that. One, when you're using sunscreen, you're already going out in the sun. And yeah. because mm-hmm. sunscreen doesn't block all of the UVB, you're probably just getting more sun, sun exposure in general than you would have otherwise, so, right? So, like, so
1: somebody who's using sunscreen is going to be somebody who doesn't need to worry about getting enough vitamin D.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Like, or, or has a lower risk yeah. of,
0: of having vitamin D deficiency. There. I would also guess maybe another caveat would be that most people are very bad at using sunscreen properly. <laughs>
3: That's the other thing. <laughs> yes, yes. Most people are not using it. So we've all probably seen the public health ha- ads and things like that talking about how to use sunscreen properly and that. Um, the general recommendation is that if you're going to be covering just about all of your body, so if you're you know, wearing a, a typical kind of swimsuit that doesn't cover much of the body, um, an adult would use about 30 milliliters of of sunscreen to really? do that.
1: That's two tablespoons. Two,
3: yeah, two tablespoons or an ounce, a fluid ounce there. So when we go south, Gem, I think we actually do use that much. Oh, I, I definitely you. do. Jim <laughs> definitely does. But I know that I would use a fair amount too. Um, when you think of all your limbs, it actually isn't a huge amount when yeah, you think okay. about when I, like that's... two
0: tablespoons sounds like a lot less than 30 milliliters but i know it's the same yeah
3: yeah think of a shot glass full of sunscreen gross <laughs> yes
2: how much do i have to eat in order to make me immune to the sun <laughs>
1: there you, you need external use only lauren and <laughs> why does it taste like coconut <laughs> It shouldn't taste like coconut, it only smell like it.
0: <laughs> and then you're supposed to reapply it like every hour and immediately after toweling. Well, it and... says every
3: 2 at minimum or like at, like no longer than every 2 hours, but if you're going in the water, then somewhere between every 40 and 80 minutes, depending yeah. on how water resistant your sunscreen is there, and there is apparently good evidence that you should, in fact, put it on before going outside. Mm-hmm. So it needs some time to activate. It needs like the warmth of your skin will help the chemicals to to react and activate properly. Yeah, and like so if you minutes. put it on when you first go outside, um, it won't. It will take the first ten minutes, ten to twenty minutes or so. To be effective
1: mm-hmm. and we're specifically talking about chemical sunscreens not the physical barrier sunscreens that use zinc oxide and like that because we're not lifeguards in the 50s yeah. I don't think anybody uses them they're the- pretty
0: uncommon now no. you can still <laughs> find them uh, a lot of reenactors will actually find them because the uh, the stuff in the modern ones will react with sweat and white linens to make them bright orange. Okay.
3: Yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. Because of some fears of the chemical sunscreens, which I'm going to come back to, some people are actually seeking out the physical blockers now. And there are more that combine both elements, Mm -hmm. too. So Mm -hmm. there are more and more that will combine um, some chemical and some zinc or titanium oxide. Apparently, they've been incorporating like micronized minerals more so, so very, very teeny tiny particles, and that's helping with the texture and things like that. So you're not getting that big caked white nose that you would see in in a lot of those movies and things like that as well. So they're becoming more acceptable when people are looking for for alternatives for things as well.
1: I'm just imagining one of those lifeguards, you know, like by by the time September rolls around, and they're walking around, and their their face is just completely, like, tanned, like a dark, like, nut brown. Except and, for the nose. And notes. then their nose is just, just like, this like, shining white,
0: oh God. pale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awkward.
1: Awful.
3: So we've been talking a little bit about UV rays, so I thought I'd talk about those a little bit, too. Because most of us know that's what comes from the sun, and that's what causes the issues, or that's what we're trying to prevent too much exposure to. I think a lot of people recognize that there's two main types of UV rays that we're concerned about when it comes to skin health. There's UVA and UVB. We were talking about UVB. Um, but I thought there's some, a couple of interesting facts that I'd bring up around those ones there. The UVA and UVB, as we were talking about, they have different frequencies there, and that's why they affect the skin differently in different ways. UVA is responsible for some of the tanning, but that's what's responsible for a lot of the wrinkles and the the premature aging of the skin. So that type of skin damage there, it's the UVA Rays, um, and the UVA rays penetrate into the deeper layers of the skin, and that's why it causes the wrinkles because mm. it breaks down that collagen and all of those supportive tissues makes in the your skin, skin. Less there. elastic makes it less elastic. Absolutely. What's interesting about UVA is that UVA rays have the same intensity all day, all year long. So UVA ray, rays are always there all the time. So those when we talk about those prime daylight hours, sort of between 11 and 3, something like that, that doesn't apply to UVA. UVA is always available.
2: And in a Winnipeg so, winter, that's the only daylight.
0: Exactly. 100% pure UVA rays. So the most damaging and deeply penetrating ones are there no matter what time of day it is, as long as the sun is up.
3: As long as the sun is up, UVA is present there. And UVA penetrates glass. Not every type of glass, but standard glass, it fully penetrates that. So you mm. you can get skin damage and premature aging by being indoors but sitting near a sunlit window mm-hmm. a lot of your time there. Or be, by being in a car on a road trip or something like that. Yeah, you have the windows up. Um, but if your windows aren't tinted to block out those rays, then you can be getting that damage there. So that's I interesting to know. most
0: car windows were tinted because that's why transition lenses don't work in cars, because the windshield blocks the UV rays.
3: I believe that tinting is a lot more standard than it used to be. Okay. Um I I honestly don't know how what the rules are around tinting and if they do need to in fact if they just shade or if they actually block mm. rays. And that's one of the things with sunglasses as well. You can get really cheap sunglasses that just shade mm-hmm. but don't actually block the rays. So that's interesting. UVB, on the other hand, has a different wavelength and it affects mostly the, the top layers of the skin. And so it's most responsible for the cancers. Um, the And that's where a lot of the cancers will will develop there. It's also responsible for the burning mm. sensation there, that reddening of the skin. And, and like I said, the intensity fluctuates during the day. And this one doesn't penetrate glass. So if you sit near a sunlit window, you can get wrinkles, but you're not going to be getting those, uh, those cancer-causing rays. so
1: and you're much. not going to get a burn.
3: And you're not going to get a burn from it. You might still feel hot because the heat <laughs> is still there, but you're not actually going to get that same burn. So on to sunscreen a little bit. First, a little bit about SPF, the sun protection factor. Mm-hmm. Because this is always a good one. We see that number, and and we've been trained to know that higher is better, right? So 150 SPF. Absolutely, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Go for it. Just, <laughs> you know, maybe find a 200 out there, right? Does that exist I, I don't know I've seen a hundred <laughs> yeah I've, I've not seen 150 100. or anything like that
1: the highest I see frequently is like 50 or 60
3: that's what's like that's what's typically available you can find the tiny bottles of a hundred in the for an exorbitant price in mm-hmm. the cosmetics section. So the sun protection factor, it relates to how much of the UVB rays are blocked out by this. And the what what it's measuring is, compared to not wearing any sunscreen at all, how much slower will your skin turn red using this?
1: So SPF 50 is it takes 50 times as long to get the same amount of burn as you would with unprotected skin.
0: Yeah. Oh. So my understanding was that it was like a logarithmic scale, and it started from like 10 was pretty bad and 50 was like 90% of the rays that
1: it was blocking. It's not logarithmic, but it does kind of work that way Mm. in the sense that SPF 10, you're blocking 90% you're well okay it takes ten. so so we're not (laughs) actually measuring how much uv is being blocked we're measuring how long it takes to get the same symptoms (gasps) which is a proxy yeah for yeah for the uv i'm
0: surprised it's that so it sounds unscientific to me like it took longer for this person to go red
1: (laughs) oh yeah like it uh yeah and it is not exact
0: yeah
3: well, and that's going to depend on who your test population is as well. If we're testing on Jem, this is a different story, <laughs> right? So so I think there's... You,
1: you, 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 you need a, a really fast hand on that stopwatch <laughs> for the I unprotected skin. you need, like,
3: ultra-speed camera for yeah. that one there. Jem thinks about the sun, and he's developed a sunburn, so...
1: <laughs> I, I had to go to the hospital in winter one time because I got a sunburn Jesus. so bad. <laughs> it was February. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yep, yep. So to put that it into perspective, Ashlyn, if you're thinking about how much is blocked out, generally the calculations will go: an SPF of thirty will block out about ninety-seven percent of the rays, whereas SPF of fifty will block out about ninety-eight mm-hmm. percent of the rays. So you've gone up twenty SPF points, but you've got one percent extra block. Yeah, that's wild. There,
1: well, one percentage point. It right. is more than one percent right. extra that- block. Yeah.
3: Sorry, I misspoke. But it's it's not a it's not a tremendously large increase. There, you see the biggest increases in blockages at the lower numbers.
1: But when when you look at the amount of uh, UVB that is coming through, if you're blocking ninety seven percent of the UVB, three percent is getting through. And then if you're blocking ninety eight, two percent is getting through. But you're still blocking one third of the UVB that was getting through with the SPF thirty. Yeah, which is. The one percentage point out of three percentage
3: points. (laughs) Right. Dermatological societies and cancer societies recommend um, at least an SPF of 30, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that going over 50 is useful or necessary for the vast majority of people because Mm -hmm. of how the numbers work there. So go with at least 30. Uh, Interesting, apparently, at least in the U.S., products that are labeled sunscreens or oils or whatever that have an SPF of 8 or lower must contain warning statements that Mm. they are, they could encourage cancer risk and that because they don't have a high sun protection factor. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting there. And speaking of the melanin part of it, people who have more melanin in their skin do in fact need some sunscreen, especially Mm -hmm. if they have a lot of sun exposure, even though they can – even though they need it for their vitamin D um, production and things like that, they can still get that same skin damage. They still have a risk of skin cancer. It is lower, but it's still there. It's, so especially if they're going to be spending a lot of time in the sun, It is, it is important to be getting some of that on mm-hmm. there for their skin health. So that's
0: something to keep in mind. I have a hot tip about sunscreen in Canada. So it's way harder in Canada to get anything labeled as sunscreen uh, than it is in the States. So a lot of our products that you can buy at, like, Sephora and even drugstore products have a lot of those, uh, like, they'll have... SPF 30, as a lot of makeup products do, like foundations and stuff, but they're not allowed to say that in Canada, but they're the same formula as the ones in the States. So if you look up the makeup that you're using in the States and it says that it has sun protection, it almost certainly does in Canada too, because they don't change the formula. They just can't get the permission to say it.
3: So what... What makes that? Because I do see some products,
0: like cosmetics, that say that. Uh, A lot of extra testing and regulation
1: that they have to submit themselves to. And it's really expensive. Basically, Health Canada is like, you need to provide evidence to back this up. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which is something that uh, it would be nice if Health Canada did for, (laughs) say, uh, natural health products, Uh but they don't.
3: Yep. It's nice to have, but one thing that came through in all the research, whenever dermatologists who are the people who are dealing with skin health all the time uh, were interviewed. They always said, you know, yes these cosmetics are great, but the thing with, again, using sunscreen properly, you need a concentration of the chemical sunscreen of equivalent of 2 milligrams per um, squared centimeter Mm -hmm. of skin. And that's where that 30 milliliters of sunscreen comes in. So you would have to wear a lot of foundation. So we do also then run into a problem of people saying, oh, well my moisturizer which i use just a dab of is spf and then my my foundation which i just use spots here and there is spf and so i'm covered for the day and they don't think about it and then Mm -hmm. they don't put a base of sunscreen on underneath or Mm -hmm. anything like that so it's a a bit of a double-edged sword like i guess it's better than nothing but at the same time it's also they for some people it may be deferring them from actually using true sun protective products
0: They also have really cool products now like uh, setting sprays and powders that are primarily sunscreen that you can uh, put on on top of your makeup throughout the day, which I think is pretty cool.
3: Yeah, yeah. I heard I I just I read about a couple of those. So I'm going to check those kinds of things out. Cool. A couple more things about sunscreen. Some common myths only in the summer. Not true, as we just heard. The UVA is present all of the time there, or if you're going to be in places that are particularly reflective, like ice or snow, um, and it's a bright sunny day, you can get sunburns, like Jem talked about there. So uh, you do need it uh, around the around the all year round.
0: Is that what happened? Were you somewhere really snowy?
1: Yeah, we're uh, a bunch of friends that I were playing on like some big snow hills, and we got like really, you know, we got like hot and sweaty pushing each other around playing king of the hill and so we like we took our jackets off because it was like you know it was like minus two minus four you know whatever yeah and so t-shirt on snow it was not good
0: very good well (laughs) done (laughs) talent
3: uh the next big myth that you'll hear a lot for the anti-sunscreen crowd. There's a lot of people in the anti-sunscreen crowd. <laughs> it just, it makes me so sad.
1: One of the first big, I think it was only like six or eight people, but one of the first times at the on the Winnipeg Skeptics blog that we had a bunch of people come in and like call us names and stuff were, I think I wrote something uh, about like uh, Fabutan was advertising a whole bunch of like stuff about how how terrible the sunscreen lobby was or something. Fabi Tan had some pamphlet and I was making fun of it. Oh my. And we got a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of tanning enthusiasts who were very mad about sunscreen.
3: (laughs) Right, right. Oh, that's another thing. Another myth, having a tan doesn't protect you. Right. Any sort of
0: tan is damage.
3: Any sort of tan is damage. It is, yeah, it's your, your skin trying to protect itself, but it's It's not actually creating like magic armor or something like that. It's not preventing future damage Mm -hmm. at all. So that sort of base tan so you don't burn, maybe you won't burn, but you're still getting the damage there. And if, again, if that tan is giving you that false sense of security that like, oh, now I don't need as much sunscreen because I've already tanned, you're worse off Mm -hmm. for it. So no, sorry. No tan is a good tan. Um but uh, the anti sunscreen crowd they have a couple of main claims they say that sunscreen actually causes cancer so it's not actually helping it and then um so i'll come back to that second one <laughs> so they say that sunscreen all uh, actually causes cancer and this is just that classic misinterpretation misinter- of a correlation here where they say well we see higher cancer numbers in sunscreen users therefore it must be the sunscreen but like we talked about the, the people most Likely to use sunscreen in large amounts are people spending lots of time in the sun. Mm-hmm. Particularly, it sounded like from this research, people with light skin, not a lot of melanin, going to places with a lot of sun and mm. spending a lot of time in it. So they're getting, um, their bodies are definitely don't have a lot to to protect them.
1: So people, are, people who are already at a much higher risk of cancer are also more likely to wear sunscreen.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Just like you have all these studies about uh, the fact that alcohol is um, protective uh, against cancer, but there are a lot of confounding factors because the people who abstain from alcohol in the studies are people who uh, typically have been told by their doctors they can't consume alcohol because they're on medication, because they're, you know. Uh,
3: Yeah, they were sicker in general. And they're on
1: medications that mean they have to abstain.
3: (laughs) Yeah, or they knew they were at higher risk for X, Y, and Z other factors and choose not to have alcohol because of that, but their risk is still there and those types of things. Yeah, it was definitely a classic misinterpretation of a correlation into causation Mm -hmm. there. The other big claim of the anti-sunscreen crowd is that, well, the chemicals, scary chemicals, Um, the chemicals in sunscreens are either toxic... Okay, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Or their biggest one is their endos- endocrine disruptors, which is a mm. big buzzword um, right now. I'm not saying that there isn't validity to this with some ke- uh, chemicals or that there isn't co- uh, cause for concern. But the one, ke- the Chemical that they tend to single out, the oxybenzone, yeah. is the one that um, they're most concerned about. There, there was a study that was done in rats that showed that the rats that were given the oxybenzone uh, treatment had their uteruses grew to like twenty three times size normal or something like that. So it was affecting mm. their their hormones. So yeah, it sounds like a cause for concern. But there's a couple of things here. The rats were fed this stuff. It wasn't applied topically. So
1: External that's... use only, Lauren.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so different modes of absorption, that's going to affect how much and if it enters the system. Very like it's, The gut and the skin do not work the same way in terms of chemicals getting into our bodies. So we can't look at that. Plus it's a rat study, so we still have to look at it in humans. Um, and also the amounts that they were fed were huge quantities. So another group of scientists ran the numbers from this study to say, okay, well, if we were to, let's just assume that the the absorption was going to be the same if we're going to run it in humans, but instead of feeding it to them, we're going to do it topically. So when they ran the numbers looking at Uh, anywhere from ideal sunscreen use to actual sunscreen use, which is about like 25% of what is recommended um, (laughs) there. So, you know, they're being pretty realistic. It would take somewhere between 34 and 277 years of daily sunscreen use to reach the blood concentrations of oxybenzone that these rats had. So just to get up to that blood concentration of oxybenzone, you'd have to use um that ounce of sunscreen every single day of the year for 34 years straight to get that so it's really impossible and if you're looking at unrealistic or if you're using looking at realistic use then it's like three humans lifetimes four humans lifetimes sometimes to get there so the risk then of actual endocrine disruption, and that is much, much lower when you put it into context. So there are chemical, there are sunscreen manufacturers that are responding to uh, consumer demand, and they've taken out the oxybenzone, there's other chemicals that are used as well. And like I said, there's some of those um, combined physical barrier products as well. But there doesn't seem to be any good evidence right now that it is in fact causing uh, hormone disruptions for us.
0: They're apparently bad for like coral reefs, though. There's something
3: about that. I don't know. I'm not an environmentalist. Um, there's a lot of things that could be happening, but there's also, you know, we want to think about, okay, if there's a lot of sunscreen, there's also probably a lot of tourism and a lot of boat traffic and a lot of other stuff going mm-hmm. on in those cases. And then global warming in general is bad. And then as global warming gets worse, we wear more sunscreen and yep, etc. Stay safe in the sun. Enjoy your sun time responsibly still wear a hat and sun protective clothing and and wear enough sunscreen everybody
2: (laughs) this summer i actually bought a long-sleeved uh swim top
3: yeah it's amazing i bought gem one a couple years ago maybe it was even three years ago it allows gem to because he loves like we we have we love playing on the beach when we go somewhere tropical but gem would just be so terrified of of sunburns all the time and so it lets him you know you're just a lot more free to have fun
0: Lauren has prepared a segment for us about the best summer creatures, which are butterflies. Fact, not opinion.
2: <laughs> this topic came about because I was weeding decals of Ashlands that were butterfly-shaped. So, she's like, what are you doing your segment on? I oh, don't butterflies? And then I wrote a segment on butterflies. <laughs> Woo! Thesis statement. Butterflies are fascinating. We found fossils of them that go back to the uh, Paleocene, and several human cultures throughout history have had myths or legends around their local butterfly populations. I'm in the mood today to present this topic in grade 8 essay style, so we have three main points that I feel make butterflies amazing, (laughs) (laughs) and none of them have anything to do with the variety of colors and patterns that butterflies have evolved for various forms of predator detraction.
1: Do you have one of those uh, those folding backboards? Um, with the the cardboard oh, to do a project, with the yeah. We, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, and the trifold.
1: yeah. And you cut them out in the
2: shape of the butterfly, yeah. Ooh, mm-hmm.
3: nice!
1: That's a
2: science
3: fair if I've ever heard something. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Point the first <laughs> butterflies turn to goo.
1: <laughs> I love this.
2: Butterflies have a four-stage life cycle. They're an egg. They're a caterpillar. They're a chrysalis, and then they're a butterfly if they're lucky admittedly most of the eggs and caterpillars become food for other creatures so the eggs hatch and the caterpillars
0: go about their little life cycle where they eat everything and they go through two apples and some leaves <laughs> and some cheese no there's no there's no cheese there's totally cheese there's, yes there oh, is there's yeah, a slice, yeah. there of, is a slice swiss of swiss cheese, cheese. a slice <laughs> of
1: swiss cheese one lollipop some watermelon one...
3: the last thing is a slice of watermelon Chemicals? I've never
2: read that book, guys. Oh,
3: it's so good. We have it upstairs in case you want to know. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But they, they legit eat everything. Yeah. yeah. Like our trees in the <laughs> summertime.
2: It does depend on the species of caterpillar and butterfly as well. Certain ones <laughs> eat different things. Caterpillars molt repeatedly, gaining more butterfly-esque markings with each molt. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't I realize really, that. Yeah.
3: That's I cool. thought they were just kind of the same. But All of
2: no, them or just some of them? Most of them. Cool. And the last molt becomes the chrysalis. Unlike Mm. moths, butterflies don't spin cocoons. Their last molt turns into a hardened chrysalis that they use to turn into goo.
3: Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Huh.
2: So the first couple of days in the chrysalis, the caterpillar's body begins to break down, eventually almost liquefying. This goo then rearranges and forms the butterfly. I'm sure there's a very detailed scientific process, but... I'm not going to get into that right now. Mm-hmm. It's magic. Yeah. After emerging, the butterfly must then dry out its wings and get the blood flowing through all of the uh, capillaries in these brand new wings. And so it can't fly away right away. You'll see like the cartoons or something where it says like the butterfly will just start flying away. No, it has to sit there. And, and it's, it's going very... to
0: flap its wings for a while. Yeah. And
2: it's very vulnerable. And a lot of them die in that stage. Sorry.
1: Is it considered blood or like ichor?
0: Yeah, there's a there's a fancy word for it. It's not quite blood, but Yeah, it, yeah. it's
3: it's not but the blood-like substance yeah. of it. It's life force. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, and it can like for a while, it can be a few hours. Yeah. Right? Like it's not even a few minutes. For no, some it's of them, I think it can be a long time.
2: Yeah. And they if they don't if they're not in direct sunlight, then they have to wait longer because they have to basically heat up. Right you got to charge up before you can fly away. It's a lot of work.
3: (laughs) Imagining tiny little solar panels on their wings. That's
2: basically what their wings are. Mm -hmm.
0: Hemolymph. That was the word I was trying to
2: think about.
3: That's it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I know this word. I've learned this word. I do not remember (laughs) this word.
2: (laughs) I didn't put that in my point form notes that I'm totally cribbing this section off of because this is literally a grade eight essay.
0: Uh, They've done experiments where...
1: This is very cool.
0: Right? You can basically do mean things to caterpillars and then after after they go through the chrysalis and they liquefy and then become a butterfly they will have the same aversion to that stimulus that the caterpillar did so they remember the bad things happening after being liquefied it's wild
1: it is not well understood
0: right (laughs) how
1: (laughs) but really cool
2: along the same vein point the second Butterflies are bloodthirsty monsters because we tortured them as caterpillars. (laughs) (laughs) Several butterfly species engage in something called mud puddling, where they will sample any liquid that they come across, be it a mud puddle or a pile of gore or blood or whatever, because they need to get the minerals from it, especially salt. Scientists have done some studies where it's apparently more male butterflies that'll do this. Okay. Because their bodies can't synthesize Everything they need from the pollen or nectar from flowers that they're drinking. Hmm. So they have to get minerals like salt. Elsewhere. That's interesting.
1: I know a lot of male butterflies, or at least for some species, do not actually eat at all yeah, after some of them don't, yeah. metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. They just try to spawn and die.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but some live a long time.
1: Or try, yeah. to, try to mate and die, I guess.
2: Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had a butterfly land on you when you're sweaty?
0: I don't think
3: so. No. Okay. No.
0: I've only had a few butterflies land on me, and it was usually in those, like, big butterfly exhibits.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it was more so in there, where it's very climate-controlled, and usually, like, on my head or mm-hmm. something like that, someplace where I'm just like, where is it? <laughs> or it's, like, on my shirt or something. Yeah. Well, you can get but, them... They'll
2: they'll drink the salt. They'll drink the sweat. That makes sense. Or you'll, you've seen the picture of the butterfly drinking the turtle's tears yep. to get its... No, get I the haven't seen yeah. that. Tears.
0: There are, like, a couple of them on each uh side of of the turtle's eyes it's pretty cool
2: oh yeah it's like Best a magical fairy tale ever <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or they'll drink your blood that makes if you sense. cut your arm or something and a butterfly happens to it's full of salt oh. yeah mm, Blood-thirsty monsters.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> point the third butterflies that migrate they journey many lifetimes i couldn't make that any more concise <laughs> <laughs> There are several species of butterflies that migrate uh, Mm -hmm. from our very northern climes to more central climates. The (laughs) most famous migrating butterflies are the monarchs or the painted ladies, which are more that you'll find in in Europe as a painted lady species. Monarchs migrate from southern Canada to Central America, laying eggs and living and spending their lives on the journey. Mm -hmm. So the same butterfly won't be leaving and then making it all the way to its winter home. It will stop, lay its eggs, die. A new caterpillar will hatch, hopefully. So if there's some caterpillars that are lucky enough to hatch, they will then do their uh, chrysalis and continue on their leg of the journey. And there will be three or four different life cycles by the time they get down. And then they'll have some life cycles down while they're in the the southern climes. And then the same thing will happen on the way back now. Have you heard about the mountain in the middle of Lake Superior?
0: Yeah. No. no.
2: Monarchs that have migrated from the northern part of Lake Superior, so kind of like Thunder Bay where I grew up, they will travel south and then they will take a sharp detour to the east, travel for a few kilometers, turn south again, and keep going. As near as scientists can figure, it's because there was a giant mountain there in however many thousands and millions of years ago that is now gone, but the butterflies remember it. So they will still migrate around it because it would take less energy to go a few kilometers East than it would to go up and over the mountain.
3: That's so funny. It
2: doesn't exist anymore. Yep. So their migratory patterns are pretty, pretty sealed. They use the same travel agent every year.
3: (laughs) Apparently Ice Age Travel Company. <laughs> Thomas Cook. <laughs>
0: that's why they're out of that's why they're going out of business. It's just
3: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. for these That's hilarious. Yeah. I had no idea that happened. Yep. And
2: I'm sure there's wow. other ones, but that's the one that I remember.
3: Right. Well, yeah. because it's in your own backyard, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. Oh, cool.
2: So for these three points, these is why butterflies are fascinating. By Lauren <laughs> Bailey, age 13. <laughs> that's it. That's my segment.
0: Yay, butterflies! Yay! we've given a lot of time to winter solstice festivals, I wanted to give some time to some summer solstice festivals, which are pretty cool. Or, rather, I want to give some time to some June solstice festivals. Yeah, Um, I thought
1: thought this was supposed to be uh, July and Christmas. It's
0: June 21st, like, close enough. Deal with it, Newman. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about summer, not specifically July. Uh, Speaking of which, the Dragon Boat Festival uh celebrated throughout Asia but specifically in China sometimes falls in May sometimes in June it is on the 5th day of the 5th lunar month which changes year to year according like to the gregorian calendar uh the fifth lunar month is considered unlucky in China, uh, and it's believed that illness and natural disasters are more common. So this is one of the stories for the origin of the Dragon Boat Festival, uh, that various traditions to get rid of bad luck, like sticking needles in pictures of poisonous animals and (laughs) hanging various (laughs) kinds of plant life believed to chase away bad luck, uh, were developed uh, at the beginning of the fifth month. So uh, the first few days of the fifth month would be spent torturing paper (laughs) animals
1: throwing darts at your ex (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, and there are I guess five poisonous animals that are more active after the fifth lunar month so things like uh, scorpions and snakes and things and so these are the things that are uh, represented during this festival and uh, there are even like bracelets that are woven of five different cords representing the five poisonous animals that parents will place around their children's wrists to protect them Uh, so that's one of the theories about where this uh, festival came from, but it's been celebrated for so long that the actual origins of it are kind of lost to time. A couple of other big ones are basically the deaths of various people caused this festival. There was a very famous poet who apparently committed suicide by jumping into a lake, and the dragon boats are said to be racing out to save him. Uh, And then part of that is also they would sprinkle rice on the water so that the fish in the water would eat the rice instead of his body before they could get to it. Uh, (laughs) And so now every year they eat rice dumplings on this day whoa (laughs) there's some very complicated uh historical origins to this um however modern research suggests that like many holidays the death stories were probably superimposed upon an already existing celebration yeah likely the harvest of winter wheat which occurs uh around now so it's just a straight-up harvest festival or a dragon worship festival so yeah they they harvest winter wheat around the time of this festival and so likely it's just a straight-up harvest festival Modern day celebrations include the racing of dragon boats, of course, which uh, there's a big dragon boat festival here as well at the same time in Winnipeg and around the world in the whole sort of diaspora. They also uh, a lot of eating of rice dumplings called, I'm going to butcher this, Zhangji. Uh, And apparently the word for the rice dumpling is also quite similar to the word for prize and the word for dragon. Uh, And so it's all sort of intertwined and Lucky, delicious rice things. And they have different rice dumplings depending on which part of the country you're in. I'd like to try these sometime. Like I want to eat some rice dumplings right about now. <laughs> so, it's Dragon Boat Festival. Sounds like a good time. Cool. Fun. Wilkakuti is a solstice celebration in the southern hemisphere, uh, particularly in Bolivia, Chile, and Peru. It's celebrated by the Aymara people, who are a group of about a million indigenous people in living in that region. Uh, Evo Morales' government declared it a national holiday in Bolivia in 2009, which caused a lot of Christians to get very mad about people celebrating things that they did not.
1: Yeah, uh, like the um, the current interim president, mm-hmm. who's a Christian supremacist. He's very
0: anti-indigenous people. Very,
1: yeah, uh, claiming that they worship the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's a monster. <laughs> uh, also, uh, military-backed coups are bad, and I think that we shouldn't do them. So Will Kakuti is
0: primarily celebrated in Tiwanaku, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, it's sort of, kind of, and this is like a very Eurocentric thing to say, but it's kind of like Stonehenge in appearance, um, we think, because it was super destroyed during a lot of looting, first of all, and then just bad archaeological digs like that did not follow very good procedures and stuff. But the way that it is now um the rays of the solstice sun shine through the temple there which is called the sun gate so that's got to be a pretty cool thing to see mm-hmm. So people will come from all over the world to celebrate the solstice there there are four tables which are ceremonially burned i could find no other information about why there are four tables but that's like a cool different thing Um, And there's music and offerings are made to mark the start of the new agricultural year and the lengthening of the days. Hmm. That sounds nice. Mm -hmm. And a very comparatively small solstice festival that I had not heard of before. Speaking of solstice festivals or celebrations that I had not heard of before, the Day of Private Reflection. Uh, So this is a day of observance in Northern Ireland. This is my kind of holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it was chosen to be on the solstice because the summer solstice seemed like a good day to look forward and look back. Uh, It commemorates the violent political upheavals, and it was meant to start as a day of quiet personal reflection that would maybe grow into a larger community-based event as time passed. So they kind of wanted this event to take on more significance every year. Um, It was begun in 2007, but it doesn't really seem to have taken off the way the organizers had hoped. It doesn't really seem to be a thing Anymore, the most recent thing I could find about it was from 2014. Hmm. But, you know, not all traditions make it (laughs) in the world. (laughs) But I thought it was an interesting one.
2: Some are butterfly eggs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) gun. Uh, is an Iranian Solstice celebration dating back to at least the 9th century. Uh, There are many scholars and historians uh, that wrote about it over the centuries. Those are the earliest accounts we can find, but it was not like, hey, this is a new celebration that people are are doing right now. It is a water and rain festival with the origin said to be in praising Tishtraya, who was an archangel who appeared to bring thunder and rain during a drought. And there's a Mm. whole myth about... Uh, there was a war going on and a hero archer came and shot into the heavens to summon this guy. And he, wherever the uh, arrow landed, was where the border of these two countries was going to be. <laughs> and then rain came down to bless both countries and fall peacefully upon the border and solve all their problems. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a festival that's been celebrated for more than a millennia. Traditional foods like spinach soup are served. There's dancing and poetry and splashing of water is a big deal. And there are rainbow bands which are tied on people's wrists and they wear them for 10 days and then they throw them into a stream. Hmm. Cool. That's very much the Ashland of festivals then. <laughs> yeah, uh, no kidding. <laughs> uh, there's also a Tirgan Festival in Toronto, which is a celebration of Iranian art and culture, which is held every two years. That sounds like a pretty good time. Cool. cool. Uh, so the last one I want to talk about is Indigenous Peoples Day. This festival is celebrated annually in Canada on June 21st. Uh, It's marked by various festivals across Canada, many including large gatherings and powwows, uh, like the one that takes over the forks here in Winnipeg. It's got giant events and performances and ceremonies. Um, It was first proposed in the 60s as Indian Day, um, Mm. and then uh, has sort of Evolved over time, it's been called Aboriginal Solidarity Day, and then for quite a while it was called National Aboriginal Day. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau officially changed the name to Indigenous Peoples Day in 2017. The Northwest Territories is so far the only province or territory to give this day official status as a formal statutory holiday, which they did back in 2001. Hmm. I I always see the the big billboards about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day Mm -hmm. around the time, and and I think it's pretty cool solstice celebration and yeah. a good day for it. Mm-hmm. So, solstice celebrations, they're cool. I like them. Uh, we usually have a fire <laughs> and barbecues and things. <laughs> <laughs> I usually forget
3: until at some point that day they go, oh yeah, it's the longest day of the year. Although, now with the kids being a bit older, it, it becomes a little bit more important because we mentioned, like, did you know it's the longest day of the year? Mm. and And that kind of thing. So... We mention it, but we don't mark it in any way.
0: So, Jem has delved deep into the science of hot and cold things. I don't understand your topic, but I'm excited. <laughs>
1: So uh, I'm trying to bridge the gap here. Uh, In July, you want to cool down. At Christmas time, you want to warm up. So I'm talking about foods that are claimed to either heat you up or cool you down.
2: But why don't we just turn on the furnace?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because we're recording a podcast and it's too loud. Can we have alcohol then? (laughs) We'll get into that. I know. I'm excited. So have you all heard the claim that drinking hot tea on a hot day can actually cool you down? Yes. yes. No. So today what? today I'm Never, going yes. to be uh today I'm going to be talking about the myth or fact <laughs> that certain unexpected foods can cool you down in the summer or heat you up in the winter. First, I'm going to uh give you all some common claims, then I'll provide a brief lesson on human thermoregulation. <laughs>
3: Brief. Brief. I I promise.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Then we'll examine the claims in detail and see how they stack up to the science uh, as as best as we can determine it. Sound good?
0: Yay! Yay. I feel like the tea thing and the thermodynamics thing are going to go in my favor here.
1: (laughs) There's no way that's real. (laughs) So, uh, first, some foods that supposedly cool you down. If you want to know what foods will cool you down, the internet is full of listicles claiming to tell you just that. Um so I sourced most of these from HuffPost, that vile hive of <laughs> scum and quackery. We must be cautious. Uh so uh here we go. Cucumber, watermelon, zucchini, pineapple, mango, cilantro, bitter greens, and fennel seeds.
0: Why is popsicles not on this list? <laughs> <laughs> An actual cold food. Treasies.
1: <laughs> As you would expect from Huffington, the sourcing on these is um, questionable. Uh, Plenty of uh, statements from um, dubiously credentialed health gurus alongside appeals to traditional Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, You'll notice that hot tea didn't actually make it onto this list, but it's one that my family members are fond of bringing up. So let's throw that into the mix, too. Hot tea. So what do you folks think of this list? Anything plausible in there?
3: I think all of these things are fresh tasting and thus they are conferring cooling
0: abilities to them and a lot of them have a very high water content Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i want to know if the watermelon will still cool me down even if it is hot when i consume it (laughs) that makes me think of hot watermelon which upsets me
3: (laughs) (laughs) that that is pretty gross hot watermelon that's and then now i'm thinking of like mushy
0: watermelon Uh, yeah exactly right was mint on the list
1: Cilantro. Uh, so, cilantro yeah, cilantro was, was. Mint wasn't on this list. I but feel like
0: mint m- should be on the list. Because yeah, min- like, at least that sort of makes your mouth feel colder. <laughs> so, so the very first time that I
3: heard this, I, I'm pretty sure it was the first time, I was at... It was my first time eating Moroccan food at a Mm -hmm. Moroccan restaurant, and they served hot mint tea, and that's where I heard that, Hmm. that they drink hot tea all day, and it helps cool them down, and so that combines both of those things. My mind
0: is going to be blown if this is true. (laughs) I'm so excited to find out. All right.
1: Okay, uh, so here, uh, let's uh, move on quickly to talk about uh, foods that supposedly heat you up. Booze. Uh, these are mostly sourced from an article on Taste Made by Zach Hillman, who claims that, quote, While there are plenty of old wives' tales out there regarding certain foods' ability to heat us up, science has been able to prove what works and what doesn't. Here are some of the foods on Zach's list. Coffee, ice water, ginger, cayenne pepper, peanuts, brown rice, coconut oil, and alcohol.
2: Zach, I'm disappointed.
3: Okay, some of those I never would have expected on a list like this. Like peanuts?
1: One guess as to how many sources uh, Zach cites for his article about the science behind foods that heat you up. 17. One.
0: I was going to say one, two. I was going to say zero.
1: The answer is zero. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) My
2: source, Zach's tummy.
1: Okay, so so before we dig into these claims in specific, uh, let's talk about how our bodies actually... Uh, regulate their temperature thermoregulation is an important component uh, of homeostasis which is a fancy term for the uh, steady state of physical and chemical conditions that living systems need to maintain in order to you know continue living Yeah. yeah most humans have a resting body temperature of about 37 degrees centigrade give or take a degree and our body heat is mostly generated via muscle contractions Uh, and the workings of our deep organs. Depending on environmental conditions, our body will either work to conserve this heat, or to dissipate it, to maintain that coveted homeostasis. In humans, thermoregulation is generally controlled by my old friend, the hypothalamus, the so-called master gland of the endocrine system. Uh, There was a time, oh, about four months ago, as Laura can attest, that I could recite a half dozen or so of the tropic hormones that the hypothalamus squirts out, along with their (laughs) targets and purposes. Good times.
3: So upsetting. (laughs) Don't say the word squirt, Jim.
1: (laughs) Anyway, that's a thing of the past. (laughs) I had to look all this stuff up again. (laughs) The MCAT is a distant memory. Anyway... In hot conditions, uh, we have a few techniques at our disposal to cool ourselves. First, we sweat, which causes loss of heat via evaporative cooling. Uh, This is the part in my segment where I cut my digression about the high heat capacity of water and how cool that is from a chemical perspective.
2: Butterflies will drink your sweat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's important to note that evaporative cooling is only effective in arid climates. Uh, that's one of the reasons that humidity can be so crushing.
2: Yep, Enzik, I'm looking at you.
1: <laughs> Second, our erector pili flatten the hairs. <laughs> what?
3: Did you not hear
1: that? <laughs> it's a-rector, not e- well. You say erector. Erector pili. It's the muscles that. Never mind. <laughs>
0: You're making it worse.
1: <laughs> that the the hairs on our skin. Thank you. <laughs> get flattened when erect. These hairs trap heat in a layer of still air close to our skin, like so. Birds. So so by uh, flattening the hairs out, we eliminate this uh, this layer of still air that traps heat. Okay, so that's the second way we cool down, all the hairs on your skin flatten down to make sure no heat's getting trapped. And third, vasodilation increases blood flow to the capillaries closest to the surface of the skin, increasing the heat exchange with the environment. So uh, assuming that it's less than 37 degrees outside, this will cool our body because you get more heat exchange. That's how thermodynamics works. Unfortunately, if it is hotter than 37 degrees, you're still increasing heat exchange, and you're in for a bad time.
2: I'm looking at you, Penzik.
1: <laughs> so to heat up, our bodies have a couple of related tricks. First, our Erector Pili f- lift our hairs upright. Like fat birds. To trap heat, as uh, uh, I just discussed, oh, to Myriad I love Giggles.
0: fat birds so much, they're all fluffy. <laughs>
1: Uh, second, uh, vasoconstriction occurs, routing blood away from the skin, uh, preventing heat exchange with the environment. Third, vitamin D. <laughs> brown adipocytes can produce heat via the consumption of triglycerides in a process called non shivering thermogenesis. Fourth, and probably most obviously, we shiver. The process of shivering, which is triggered by the hypothalamus, essentially produces heat by making the muscles work. If you remember nothing else from high school physics, hopefully you remember entropy. Essentially, whenever any work is done, some of the energy that goes into doing that work is irreversibly lost as waste heat. The less efficient the process, the more waste heat is produced. Um, Compare an incandescent light bulb to an LED bulb, for example. An incandescent light bulb is much less efficient, takes a lot more energy, because a lot of the energy is lost to heat. Incandescent heats up. Typically, our organs work to eliminate waste heat. If they didn't, we would immediately die. Uh, (laughs) But when we're cold, our skeletal muscles intentionally do low-efficiency work, shivering, for the express purpose of producing that waste heat. Cool, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. This is why I shake uncontrollably in the cold.
1: I'm almost done. We'll turn the we'll turn the the <laughs> furnace right back on, okay?
0: No, it wasn't even like, okay, at this time of year especially, before I've gotten properly acclimatized to our horrible winter weather, like going from the home to the car and waiting for the car to wake up, my whole body just shakes and it's really uncomfortable and
1: not fun. So it sounds like you're, you've are you got some high-intensity shivering going on. Yeah. Uh, th- there's actually an interesting distinction between uh, the low-intensity shivering and high-intensity shivering that mammals do, uh, which I will not get into because uh, <laughs> everybody wants cast? to turn the furnace back on. So, <laughs> so let's get to uh, some of these claims and the science. So let's start with the stuff that's supposed to cool you down. First off, we have cucumber and watermelon. HuffPost claims that uh, these will cool you down because, why, they're more than 90% water. Plus, they've got, like, electrolytes and shit. So how does that sound to people? Does that, do you think that'll cool you down?
3: Hydration and cooling are can co-occur, but are not the same thing.
1: So as discussed... Um, you need water to sweat. You're not going to sweat if you're totally dehydrated. So yeah, you, you, you can't sweat if you're out of water. So it it helps in that sense. But if you want to talk water, you know, what's 100% water, a glass of water. <laughs> so uh, these things are going to be less effective at cooling you down than just <laughs> having water. And while it, It is important to replenish electrolytes that get lost during perspiration. Having those electrolytes doesn't help actually cool you in any way. It's just, as you get cooled by sweating, you need to replenish the electrolytes. Um, They don't in and of themselves do anything to increase sweating. So, nah, this doesn't really cool you down any more than a glass of room-temperature water would. How about zucchini and pineapple? Those are also supposed to cool you down. Why? Well... In addition to having lots of water, they are yin foods.
3: (laughs) Ah, yes, classic.
1: According to the diverse Chinese philosophies uh, that form the basis for traditional Chinese medicine, yin is characterized as cold and wet, while yang is hot and dry. Thus, a yin food is thought to cool you down. Uh, Yin is, of course, also thought to be soft, yielding, and passive, being associated as it is with femininity and darkness. Uh, in contrast to Yang's hard, focused, active masculinity that is altogether bright and sunny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so a uh, pineapple zucchini pizza, very cooling. <laughs> very yin. Ugh. Oh, It also God. sounds horrifying. Yes. There's two things available at Pizza Pizza. You can get it right now.
1: Oh, God. Oh. So I, I probably don't have to say this, uh, but as far as the science is concerned, the yin-yang duality well, ha- has no basis in it. Uh, so I would not go for zucchini and pineapple to cool you down. Bitter greens are also supposed to cool you down. Why? I'll quote from the Huffington Post. <laughs> In Chinese medicine, internal heat is believed to be a result of inflammation or dehydration. Bitter greens reduce inflammation. Nope, we've been over this. Uh, <laughs> mango, also is supposed to cool you down. Why? Quote. It's the king of fruits, according to Ayurveda, and no wonder. This exotic treat delivers a burst of antioxidants, including immunity, boosting vitamin C and vitamin A. These nutrients help hydrate your cells, keeping body temperature in check.
2: The dietician
1: is having a a moment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like,
1: what? (laughs) So, uh, for those uh, not familiar, Ayurveda is the traditional medical philosophy of the Indian subcontinent. Like its Chinese cousin, it emphasizes balance, in this case, uh, not between yin and yang, but between the three doshas. These doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, are analogous to the four humors of pre-scientific European medicine. They control a person's temperament, and can be controlled in turn by changes to a person's behavior and environment. Like, for example... Eating a bunch of mango.
0: All of these things are heating and cooling is just all the way back to the humors. Yeah, yeah, If you're too hot, eat something cold.
1: (laughs) So as far as the science goes, uh, Ayurveda, like TCM, has uh, no basis in science. Uh, Additionally, though this has nothing to do with thermoregulation, claims that vitamins A and C are immunity-boosting are unfounded. There is scant, low-quality clinical evidence that large doses of vitamin C may decrease the duration of a cold by a couple of hours, at most, (laughs) uh, but I wouldn't hang my hat on those data, and the concept of boosting the immune system is uh, junk science. So if we discount Ayurveda, again, we're just left with hydration, which we've covered. If you're dehydrated, this could help you sweat more, cooling you down, but if that's the case— Drinking a glass of water would again be more effective. Okay, uh, let's uh, speed through a few more of these. Cilantro, quote, A staple of Ayurvedic medicine, cilantro is popular in the summer because of its cooling properties. Nope. Fennel seeds, quote, Fennel seeds are a centuries-old digestive aid known for their cooling energy cooling energy.
3: Energy. You're just, you're fully making stuff up at this point. (laughs) And for helping
1: to prevent and relieve gas. What
3: what did that have to do with what we were talking about?
1: If you get the hot air out, you'll be colder. (laughs) (laughs) So I will note, cooling energy is a particularly hilarious phrase because it misunderstands what energy is. I mean, from a thermodynamic perspective, if you are transferring any sort of energy to something... Well, you're not going to be cooling it down. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a centuries old digestive aid. Uh, this is nonsense. In addition... Aiding digestion actually has the potential to heat you up slightly, at right, least hypothetically. because if it's going faster, you're making more heat. Uh, because uh, the additional work being done by your internal organs is going to uh, heat you up. Uh, you're also going to be making more energy available to your body because of the breakdown of the right. foods that your body is using for fuel. That's why it needs the gas aid. Yeah, right. Uh, luckily, uh, I was unable to find any scientific evidence that fennel seeds actually do work as a digestive aid, so you're probably okay there. <laughs> uh, finally, for things that are supposed to cool you down, we have hot tea, or any other hot drink. So the claim is this cools you down. Why? Uh, any guesses?
0: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the bullshit here. You ingest the hot tea and then your body has to work harder to cool you off because there's more hot stuff in you, and then the cooling effect lasts longer than the hotness.
1: That is almost what the claim is, yes.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you folks think of this idea? Ashlyn is skeptical.
3: I feel like, like I like I said, I've heard it, I've known of it, I feel like I accepted it, but now I'm not sure. I haven't thought about it for a long time, so I'm really not sure.
2: It's just refreshing.
1: <laughs> no. It's good whether it, whether, it, uh, whether it cools you down or, or not. Uh, so this one is interesting. Thermodynamically, I agree that this claim is implausible, because you are transferring heat to a system, and it would be weird, let's say, <laughs> if that resulted in a net loss in energy, right. or a net loss in, in heat, specifically. However, in a hot, arid climate, it appears that this will actually work. Drinking a hot beverage causes you to perspire,
3: yeah, that's... and that
1: perspiration is disproportionate to the amount that the hot drink actually heats you up, which is uh, not much at all because it's thermodynamically negligible. Right. Uh, so maybe the hot tea heats you up a tiny little bit, but the excess sweating that happens cools you down even more. I'm going to quote Ollie Jay, a researcher at the Thermal Ergonomics Lab in the University of Ottawa's School of Human Kinetics, uh, who actually did an experiment to test this exact hypothesis. Quote, What we found is that when you ingest a hot drink, you actually have a disproportionate increase in the amount that you sweat. Yes, the hot drink is hotter than your body temperature, so you are adding heat to the body, but the amount that you increase your sweating by, if that can all evaporate, more than compensates for the added heat to the body from the fluid. End quote.
0: So it won't work in a humid environment.
1: The key here, yes, is an arid environment. This probably won't do you much good in Singapore or even a hot day in a Montreal summer. Evaporative cooling only works if all that sweat can evaporate, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and since evaporation is an equilibrium reaction, you've got to take the outside humidity into account your sweat is not going to evaporate off your skin if there's already a lot of moisture in the air, Mm -hmm. okay? If the air is saturated. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Penzic. But even though this technically works, it is worth remembering that there are more efficient ways to cool down. <laughs> air conditioning, for example.
0: A Although misting it, bottle.
1: <laughs> yeah, a misting bottle. Yeah, a misting bottle uh, would be uh, more efficient uh, because you don't have to sweat. Right. Uh, you, have the, you have the evaporative cooling immediately. Uh, air conditioning as more efficient depends on what you're optimizing for as mm-hmm. well. Because uh, air conditioning ain't free and the world is getting warmer. Let's take a quick look at some of the claims about what will heat you up. First off, coffee. Why? It's hot when it goes in. This is interesting (laughs) because Zach, our good friend Zach, claims that you are better off drinking iced coffee to heat you up.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not willing for this to be right. So I think I've heard this. Is this the theory where it's cold so your body has to like work? it senses it has to work harder so it increases its metabolic rate or something I, like that i have that. another
0: guess is it because cold brew is more caffeinated and it makes
1: you more <laughs> so um so the idea is that caffeine stimulates your metabolism yeah um that was Ugh. yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> got it universal sound effect for metabolism <laughs> Um, so, uh, it's not that cold brew has more, yeah. uh, has more caffeine necessarily. We'll, 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 we'll get into that right away. But as far as the caffeine goes, uh, it is plausible that raising your metabolism, uh, will cause your body to do more work. But, uh, there's not a lot of evidence to back this up. It's just one of those things that, yeah, that, you know, that, like that, that, the math works out on that, <laughs> you know, but the human body's very messy. Uh, but it's, it's plausible. The next one is ice water is claimed to heat you up. So this is uh, where we get our, you're better off drinking iced coffee than, than hot coffee. Why? I will quote Zach here. Your basal body temperature will fluctuate and try to counteract the effects of the hot liquid.
0: Mm.
1: So this this reminds me of the myth that cold water boils faster than hot water. Right. That is not what? true.
0: Yeah. Um, what? Yeah, it is yeah. It is
1: not at all true. Um, what? Or that boiling water will freeze
0: faster. But there's like weird physics that happen
1: there.
3: Like, well, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that hot liquids cool you down, therefore... Cold liquids heat you up. Right. So we've covered hot liquids cooling you down. That is by stimulation of perspiration, which functions via evaporative cooling. Uh, There is no corresponding inverse mechanism for cold liquids to heat you up. Our friend Zach's lack of sources isn't doing him any favors here.
0: No, there's totally an inverse mechanism. You drink something cold, and then you shiver more, and then
1: you get warm. Uh, okay, so so that is hypothetically possible. Thank you, Ashlyn, for it's hypothermically uh, possible. No, thank you. Unfortunately, the thermal ergonomics lab, as far as I can tell, has not studied this particular question. <laughs> uh, perhaps I just uh, I just missed the memo. But I was unable to find any scientific evidence that cold uh, drinks, whether water or coffee, uh, will heat you up more than hot water. And it is, uh, as we discussed uh, with the inverse question, uh, thermodynamically improbable. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, but do we know why Winnipeggers drink more Slurpees in January? Uh,
1: No. Is is that a trick question? I hate Slurpees.
2: (laughs) Boredom
3: to prove how tough we are
2: (laughs) because calgary can't win i don't know
1: (laughs) uh let's move on to the next one ginger claims uh, claims to heat you up uh why quote it gets your blood flowing (laughs) which drives away the chills by warming your extremities so this is not true Yeah, that's pure malarkey. (laughs) While there may be some medical uses for ginger, research is generally focused on potential light analgesic effects and uh, anti-nauseant effects. Um, Increasing blood flow doesn't appear to be uh, one of them. But even if ginger did get the blood flowing to your extremities, that would likely result in a net loss of heat for your body as it would increase the temperature exchange with your environment, which presumably, if you're trying to warm up, Uh, Your environment is colder than you are in this scenario, right? Yeah, and you want to keep it in your core, not in your extremities. Yeah. Uh, Additionally, uh, Zach notes that fresh raw ginger is better and that other root vegetables could also work, though less noticeably. Uh, An article at uh, NDTV.com, again, completely unsourced, goes Mm -hmm. into more detail here, if you want to call it that. Quote, Root vegetables are known to cause heat in your body. These include <laughs> vegetables such as potato, carrots, sweet potato, and kale. These... What? what? K-
3: kale, what?
1: Kale, kale, is not a root vegetable. Oh my... God. <laughs> like, I guess you could eat kale root. I've never heard of that, but...
2: No, don't, 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 don't. It's even more bitter and K- full of dirt. Continuing the quote.
1: These vegetables require more energy during the process of digestion, causing heat in your body.
3: Okay. Everything requires energy for digestion. Like, this is just a thing. And actually, that's not true. Proteins take the most, so...
1: So uh, this is also an interesting claim. Uh, Essentially, um, uh, they're saying that you want a low caloric availability, since your body then has to work harder to get the calories, and any work that the body does results in waste heat. Uh, So this is kind of technically true. Uh, You know, that's why you heat up when you exercise. Your body is doing work, but the inefficiencies result in the production of plenty of waste heat. But the body is a complex system, and waste heat isn't really the only way your body stays warm. Uh, then, the article, uh, gets into the weeds a little. Quote, According to Ayurveda, consuming onions and garlic also generates heat in the body. Similarly, Reiki practitioners ask their patients not to eat pungent foods such as onions, shallots, leeks, chives, spring onions. Along with the heat, these foods are believed to cause nightmares, disturbed dreams, and confusion. Uh, so this is, uh, nonsense. Don't bank on ginger or any other root vegetables to heat you up.
3: Not even kale.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean,
3: like... Like, ginger has a, a warm sort of palate to it there. It has that... It's not spicy, but it, it does have that warming sort of flavor. So it totally makes sense why people could come up with that idea.
1: Speaking of which, cayenne pepper. <laughs> why? Quote, Any spicy pepper will help you break into a quick sweat. That's that's Zach again. Zach again bringing the science. <laughs> As we've discussed, (laughs) is sweating a good way to heat up?
3: (laughs) Well, again, he's coming at it from the the backwards premise here that, oh, if you're sweating, you, you know, you You must must now be hot. hot, Yeah. Right. As opposed to why are you sweating to get not hot? Like, and also, has he not heard of a cold sweat? (laughs)
1: So uh, this claim is uh, borderline incomprehensible, um, since, (laughs) (laughs) as we've discussed in detail, uh, sweating is a mechanism for cooling, not heating. Uh, I guess the idea is that the pepper somehow heats you up, and uh, that causes you to sweat, but uh, that's not... True.
0: Probably well, makes cap- my mouth feel like it's on fire. Yeah. yeah the
3: capsaicin can have that kind of that, that nervous system response for you to sweat. But again, there's a lot of neurological reasons that we sweat that don't actually have to do with heat production or loss.
1: Yeah. So this will, if anything, result in you cooling down, not warming up. Peanuts. Why? Quoting uh, Zach again. High in vitamin B three, which promotes blood flow and kickstarts your metabolism. No, it doesn't. It
3: absolutely does not, <laughs> Zach. You're full of it.
1: So uh, the blood flow claim uh, we've discussed—that's not meaningful here. Uh, also, as as far as blood flow goes, like there's lots of stuff about blood. Your your body is doing exactly what it needs to do to thermoregulate, as far as blood flow is concerned. Don't worry about it. Okay, you you, uh, you don't
3: know better than your blood vessels.
1: Yeah. Uh the metabolism bit, like that's plausible, I guess. Uh peanuts are fairly calorie dense. They give you energy, and you need energy to shiver. But you know. Few things. Few things are better than a nice spicy West African peanut soup on a cold day, though. I will give him that. But that's because that's friggin' delicious. And no, it, it's it, the peanuts, it's the cayenne, yeah, it's the ginger. <laughs> uh oh, they're onto something. Yeah, nice. I, I I put some kale in there. There's also uh, cold some root in West vegetables. Uh, okay, mm. next one, brown rice. Like what? Just why? Why, just why do you be. think that would be? That it would heat you up?
0: It's got because, lots of calories.
3: Yeah, I don't know, because he's full of shit. I don't know.
1: Complex carbohydrates. Yes,
3: that, no, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> yeah. And that goes
1: for the root vegetable
3: thing, too, which is all a crock of it.
1: So th- this uh. is, this is uh, trivially true, I guess, uh, but only insofar as <laughs> I'm killing you. A- 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 right? any food will heat you up. Um, I mean, this, this claim amounts to food is converted to energy. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so like anything caloric will fit the bill. Um, caloric, incidentally, is the name of a hypothetical fluid that hundreds of years ago scientists thought was the source of all heat. Uh, that's why we use yep. the term calorie. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, it, that you, in grade four. Yeah, like, like the ether, uh, like luminiferous sure. ether, it, 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 uh, that went the way of the dinosaur. <laughs>
0: well, dinosaurs existed, though.
1: Anyway, uh, the only thing that differentiates brown rice from anything else is, I guess, that it's a little less refined than, say, table sugar, uh, so you end up with a longer, slower burn. Uh, That gives you less heat or energy all at once, uh, though it's questionable as to whether that's really what you want in this case. Perhaps Laura could speak further to the distinction between simple and complex carbohydrates and how meaningful it is.
3: If we're going from the premise that you want your body to do the work of digestion because that's what's going to create heat then you actually do want the complex carbohydrate because something like table sugar requires almost no work of digestion because it just gets absorbed it's a very low energy process to uh, to transport that into your into your like from your gut into your blood and then into your body cells So yeah, you actually would want something that takes more work to digest, but not too much work. So something like rice is a complex carbohydrate, but fairly low in fiber, so it would probably fit that profile if you're going with that assumption there.
1: There you go. So so Laura gives Zach the stamp of uh, dietetic approval.
3: But if you're going from the premise that you need quick energy from your muscle cells to do the shivering, then... The sugar would be better because it enters the it enters the bloodstream and then can be taken to the tissues so much faster.
1: Okay, uh, well, if that didn't piss you off, uh, well, let's get to the next one. Coconut oil. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Quote: Coconut oil is full of healthy fats, which turn into fuel instead of spare tires.
3: No. Okay, okay, okay. Does he elaborate?
1: Uh. Because I can a little bit. It doesn't sound like Zach elaborates a lot in this. No, not really. These are all like two sentence. uh, I, I, I guess the claim here is that these healthy fats get burned instead of being stored.
3: Okay, so to call them like healthy fats, we don't actually have evidence to say that. They're like, maybe not as bad as some other fats. Let's call them those. And the type of fat that they're referring to is the medium chain triglycerides or MCTs, which are all the rage right now with the whole keto phase that's going on. And so these types of fats, these are short chain or not short chain fatty acids, they're medium chain fatty acids. So they're between eight and 12 carbons. um, And they do get absorbed and metabolized differently. So they get absorbed faster and they do preferentially get burned For fuel, as opposed to being um, transported to tissues and then incorporated into and out of adipose tissue, so physiologically, yeah, they do. If you have those, they are going to be burned as fuel because of what they are, but they're not metabolism boosters, and and they're not. There's nothing magic. There's no magic heating properties about them. So, what you have to look at here is is what's the composition of the whole meal or the whole whatever here. And and so yeah, your body's going to burn those, but then it maybe won't burn as much of some other type of fuel because it's burning those. And so it's preferentially putting any long chain fatty acids into storage as opposed to going through the digestion process and then and then burning them there. So that's what's happening with this.
0: I feel like it's quite bold of you to assume that they're not just eating a spoonful of coconut oil.
3: Oh, I mean, like, they definitely are, but they're also cooking with it because apparently it's magic. So the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that while coconut oil is like, oh, the MCTs, the MCTs, coconut oil actually doesn't contain a whole lot of MCTs. It's fairly small proportion. So a lot of the fat in in coconut oil is, in fact, considered that long-chain fatty acid, and it just goes through the normal fatty acid digestion process. Ah, that's interesting. So when we talk about MCTs, like... Oh, God. I wrote an article when I was used to write a blog about a terrible article about all the benefits of coconut oil. So if you, you probably still find it out there. Anyway, um, it's funny. It drove me bananas because people always equate the two, but you can't do it because calling coconut oil similar to pure MCTs is not true. And so you're taking mixed fat sources and trying to say that it only acts one way when in fact it has a different acts.
1: Okay, we're we're on the last one. Alcohol. Woo. The claim is this will heat you up, because I don't know it makes you feel warm. So it won't. But Zach or whatever his name is, uh, he he got this one right actually. Um, uh, maybe because he happened to watch that one episode of MythBusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, though uh, his explanation of 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 why it won't heat you up is a little muddled. Anyway, I'll I'll, I'll give you the actual. Uh, Explanation. So, um, alcohol makes you feel warm. You know, you get that warmth in your chest when you when you drink it, and you may also feel warmth in your extremities as well, uh, at least initially. Uh, Alcohol is a vasodilator, which means that it causes your blood vessels to relax and widen, lowering blood pressure and increasing blood flow to the extremities. So, in a cold environment, what this will do is it will make your extremities feel warm because they're they're suddenly getting more blood flow as you're losing all that heat, but the greater blood flow to the extremities will then almost immediately result in you starting to cool down. So does this mean that on a hot day, alcohol is actually a good way to cool down? Well, not so fast. Uh, Sure, at low temperatures, alcohol will cool you down. But at higher temperatures, that is to say, when it's more than 37 degrees centigrade out, uh, thermodynamics dictates that increased blood flow to the extremities will actually warm you up, as I believe I mentioned earlier, uh, since you're just increasing your heat exchange with the environment. And finally, according to Dr. Anthony Decker... Uh, writing for Scientific American, at high serum levels, alcohol actually becomes a vasoconstrictor, Mm -hmm. decreasing blood flow to the extremities. Now, this should help you preserve your heat. So if you're drinking yourself into a stupor in the middle of a blizzard, uh, (laughs) maybe more alcohol might be a little bit better than less, but uh, keep in mind that this will accelerate frostbite. Yeah. Basically, just don't drink alcohol if you're cold and definitely don't drink a lot. Because you will you will lose digits. So, uh, to summarize, a hot drink on a hot day will, surprisingly, help cool you down, so long as it's not too humid. Uh, but it'll help cool you down by sweating. And there are other ways to cool you down by uh, not sweating. Like a, a mister. Caffeine will probably heat you up, as will eating just about anything. Uh, or... Uh, getting d- doing anything with your body, any kind of exercise, any kind of internal work that your body is doing, or any kind of external work that your body is doing, any kind of work at all will heat you up. And for everything else, especially claims regarding Ayurvedic or traditional Chinese medicine, the evidence is mixed, poor, inconclusive, or conclusively false. <laughs> But the segment's not quite done. Uh, While I'm researching these segments, I often stumble across interesting tidbits that don't really fit into the segment itself, uh, but that I want to share. Now, often, as listeners well know, I will shoehorn these in, but (laughs) I couldn't find a place for this one uh, anywhere. So uh, here is something cool that I learned about thermogenesis. Not only do some plants engage in thermogenesis to keep warm, the... Lodgepole pine dwarf mistletoe, a parasitic flowering plant native to North America, actually uses thermogenesis to disperse its seeds. Whoa. Explosively.
0: Yep. No, yep.
1: <laughs> so this variety of mistletoe contains a thermogenetic protein that causes its fruit to heat up and explode. I will quote from an article in Nature. Seed dispersal in dwarf mistletoes is accompanied by a remarkable explosive process. Dwarf mistletoes spread solely by seed, which is forcibly ejected from the ripe single-seeded fruit at the end of the growing season, late August to early September in BC. For a given stand of infected pines, dispersal takes place over the period of about a week. Studies by Heinz et al. showed that a seed can be dispersed as far as twenty meters from its source, with initial velocities approaching twenty-five meters per second. That is, one hundred kilometers per hour, oh, or, oh. or highway speeds in Canada.
3: So, if you're standing in that pine grove, you might be like, "What is hitting me in the head? <laughs> what is going on?" Maybe
1: yeah, you would probably say that once. <laughs> well, the, the, the seeds small. are going. The seeds are going pretty fast, but uh, they don't have that much energy behind them because mm-hmm. they're pretty light.
0: So what's everyone enjoying this wonderful December?
1: Um I have I've kind of stalled out in reading. I'm trying to finish um Sax romer's first Fu Manchu book because I hate myself, I guess. <laughs> it is like there's racist and then there's like Sax romer racist. It is so appallingly bad.
0: This is a segment about enjoying things. Uh yeah, like
1: yeah. Uh, so Nothing. I guess what I'm saying is he I have not been enjoying that, that much reading lately because I'm trying to slog through this. I I, I don't even know why anymore. Um, oh, I have been reading All Star Superman, um, mm-hmm. which is which is pretty good. Yeah, you know, I've never been a huge DC Comics fan, but I I think it distills the essence of Superman pretty well. I finally got around to playing Pinstripe, which is a video game. It's it's all right, although it has voice work from PewDiePie, so yeah. that, that's shitty. Um. Oh, Bad Religion's Christmas album. It's Christmas, Christmas again. I like Bad Religion's Christmas album. Um. And oh, I recently watched Sean's uh video takedown of the Bell Curve, which is two and a half hours long. Um, wow. it is almost unbelievably comprehensive. Um, so I like, if you're, if you've heard people making claims about race realism, um, we've mentioned, we mentioned the bell curve way back on episode, I think 98, when we talked about, uh, bad race science. Um, but, uh, there is a lot to unpack and, uh, Sean does a good job demonstrating, the appalling scholarship that uh, Charles Murray and his co-author engage in uh, and the uh, absurd lengths they go to justify uh, incredibly regressive uh, social policies as a result of really bad science uh, that is clearly motivated from a bad place. There was also a good article that I read recently uh, from The Atlantic and Reveal about uh, workplace injuries with Amazon, how Amazon is maiming its Mm. workers and how they have an average of more than double the uh, rate of serious injuries from any other factory workplace uh, and uh, how their refusal to train people properly in safety procedures uh, has resulted in several deaths.
0: I find it incredible how you just know our episode numbers off the top of your head.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Is is it actually episode 98 that we did I have, the, I have no the, the idea, race you one? You
0: said it with such confidence that I believe
3: you. I don't currently know what episode number we are ever recording. So one fifty
1: one. We today. had cookies
3: last time, Laura. You assume I paid attention. <laughs>
1: uh, I w- I was mistaken. Episode ninety eight was our episode on uh, criminal justice, crime and punishment. Our episode about race and science was episode one ten. Pardon me.
2: Well, it was a year later.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was exactly a year later.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I took a week off of work, and then I spent the entire week doing manual labor, and cleaning our house top to bottom. Are you enjoying having a clean
1: house? It's a disaster.
0: Yeah, we haven't quite gotten there yet.
1: (laughs) Well, I was madly shoving Duplo into boxes before you folks arrived, so... (laughs) I feel you.
0: Uh, I was in a Facebook group, and somebody said, hey, I just got a Switch. What games should I play? And... A bunch of people who were recommending games that I enjoy were also recommending a game called Overcooked, so I downloaded it, mm-hmm. and it's completely ridiculous, but Dave and I have been really enjoying it. Uh, you run around in an extremely poorly laid out restaurant, on purpose, uh, trying to make food for ungrateful diners. Uh, and it's things like, uh, your kitchen is located on an iceberg, so you will slide off if you go too fast. Or (laughs) there are two trucks going past each other on the highway, but they're going at slightly different speeds and you need things from each side of this truck. So you need to time it to get back and forth properly. So, you know, very poorly laid out restaurants like that. Uh, and it's really fun. (laughs) That sounds delightful. Yeah, it's funny. So that's what I've been enjoying.
1: I've heard good things about that that series. There's there's two of them now. Yeah, there's
0: Overcooked 2. I made Dave download the first one because I like to do things in order, even if it punishes myself.
1: Uh, I'm I'm with you. Uh, somebody was suggesting I play Skyrim, and I'm like, okay, time to finally start Arena and Daggerfall.
0: <laughs> it took me a really long time to get into Star Trek because I wanted to start with the first Star Trek. Oh boy, I'm so sorry. Yeah, so I watched the first couple, and I was like, mm, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've since in- I have since enjoyed some Star Treks. All right, Laura.
3: I have been very swamped at work lately, and so I just haven't really been reading much or watching much TV or anything. Our lives have been pretty busy. But uh, the last couple of weeks on Sundays, I have made a cake, like, for no other reason except I wanted to make a double-layer completely frosted cake. It's cake day! And I did. And I have been enjoying doing that. Yay. And... Yeah, so that's been just kind of fun, because it's nice. I like making cake, and it's nice to have cake. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yay.
2: I bet Kira isn't complaining about this baking.
3: Uh, no, she didn't like the red velvet cake, though. <laughs> yeah, she really enjoyed ma- helping me with it, but she did not like the, the cake itself, and so she is not eating it. Yeah.
1: More for you? <laughs> I did make my annual uh, vegan Christmas cake
0: Ooh. Uh,
1: this year, third year in a row. So it is. It is soaking in additional rum as we speak.
0: Oh, uh, we tried the eggnog that we made last year. Uh, it has now aged one entire year. It has a lot of booze in it, but Goodness. also a lot of actual like dairy and egg yolks, uh, and it's pretty good. It it was really weird looking, and I was scared,
1: but it's delicious. Like you're still with it. us.
0: When she says "we," she means Dave and. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah yeah lauren had had nothing to do with this <laughs> um so we followed alton brown's aged eggnog Ooh. recipe uh a year ago and it uh was pretty harsh uh, at that point we we drank some of it uh and then we just put the rest of it in the fridge and kind of forgot about it uh and we shook it up because it sort of it sort of had a top layer that looked like cheese oh my god bottom layer of fairly thin liquid and we just shook it up
1: this is horrifying
0: and and drank it and we're still alive and it was good cool i would try that there are there are uh experiments that have been done that when you make it with this much alcohol after a couple of weeks it's essentially sterile because everything is dead
3: yeah so it can't survive yeah yeah that makes sense that's why alcohol is a preservative
0: Mm -hmm. so i i recommend the recipe just you gotta have patience cool
1: not an Alton Brown fan?
0: He's kind of a homophobic dick.
1: Oh, really? He, he's yeah.
2: right-wing, homophobic, and fatphobic.
1: Ah, uh, that sucks. I was
2: so sad when I, I know. heard this. Right? That's really disappointing. Like, there's...
1: I I, I was aware that he was super religious. I remember somebody mm. talking about how, like, when he's out to dinner at a restaurant, he'll, like, say, like, say grace with mm. his family and like that. And, and But, you know, like, there are lots of perfectly lovely, very religious people. Like,
0: Yeah, there's a, an article out there called something like... Uh, don't meet your heroes, how I realized Alton Brown is a dick. <laughs> hmm. So what are we talking about next month,
1: Laura?
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> this is where I volunteered an idea.
1: <laughs> I, I, I had a flash of terror because I'd been warned about this and then I realized I'd forgotten to come up with something, but Laura. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so we've had a lot of fun laughing about Sandwich Cast. Because sandwiches are awesome and beautiful and fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like sandwiches. I eat them all the time. I eat them for my supper sometimes.
1: Oh, okay. That's we get it. <laughs>
2: I like them for lunch.
1: No, not doing it,
0: Ashlyn. I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> okay. If well, I guess you have got to had insert the drop. Sandwiches.
3: <laughs> I eat them all at once.
1: <laughs> Ashlyn is looking back and forth between Laura and Lauren.
3: Oh! <laughs> That is just the intro to our next episode, <laughs> and
0: Ashlyn will learn. So we'll see you next time for Sandwich Cast! <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs> Good, night. Good
1: night.
0: I thought you got the joke earlier
3: <laughs> when we were doing this.
1: Life, the universe, and everything else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble. With mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey.
0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and everything else. Today on the show, Christmas on July. No, that's the other way.
1: Christmas in in July? No. July
0: July. on Christmas. Yes. July in Christmas? July on Christmas. At.
1: July into Christmas.
0: (laughs) (laughs) July at Christmas. I don't like
1: that. Okay.
0: July on Christmas.
1: I don't like any of them.
0: July on Christmas. Feels good. All right. (laughs) You make a July out of Christmas.
1: (laughs) Oh, God.
0: July during Christmas time. Yay.